so again, my name is Eric, and welcome here tonight. Uh, so if you're a part of this community, we've been in the series uh, of Advent, the series of, of waiting and anticipating tomorrow, the, the, the arrival of Jesus on the planet. And, and Advent is, is set up of four weeks uh, in the days leading up to Christmas. And it's a time meant to sort of wrap your head around what it means that God uh, has sent his son, sent Jesus into the world. And we, we called this series When God Said Yes. And I called it that because I was reading my Bible months ago and I stumbled across this sentence in um, a letter that, that a guy named Paul wrote to a church in Greece, a church in Corinth. And Paul wrote these words. He said, in Jesus Christ, the answer is always yes. All of God's promises have their yes in Jesus. And that's why we say amen through Jesus to the glory of God. If you're, if you're not really uh, like, uh, used to kind of church and Bible language, First of all, like amen is just like a churchy Bible way to say, all right, or I agree, or right on, brother. Um, and so Paul says, listen, every promise that God makes is found, the answer is found in Jesus, and the answer is always yes. And I was like so taken with the language of it, which was so beautiful, so poetic. And I was like, man, like let's just call this series of Advent when God said yes. Now, um, the weeks leading up to, to Christmas, um, they're, they're typically in church traditions, they're associated with different concepts, different faith concepts. Um, we chose to use the concepts of, of uh, hope, then love, then joy, then peace. That's what the candles all represent. And so basically the last few weeks we've been walking through like what does it look like that God said yes to hope, yes to love, yes to joy, yes to peace. And then today we're gonna to talk about what does it mean that through Jesus and the arrival of this baby named Jesus into the world, what does it mean that God said yes to humanity, right? And so like the way we've been approaching it is like, like to say yes to these concepts, God affirms them. He says, yes, I am a God of hope. Yes, I'm a God of love. Yes, I'm a God of joy. And these things all matter. And so today, we're going to talk about what does it mean that God, at the culmination of all these things, says, I say yes to human beings. And before we get into this, uh, I'm going to do this with just a couple verses out of the Bible but uh, I want to let you know that like, as I was thinking about this as well, I, I don't think that I should blow by the fact that the last I checked, every person in this room falls under the label of human being, right? Okay, right on. Amen. So the, the point being, I, I had this moment for myself when I was like, I can get really caught up in concepts. I'm a big picture thinker. But when we get into this thing, when I say God says yes to humanity, that means he says yes to me. And that means he says yes to you. And that means he says yes to you and to you. Like, don't leave yourself out of the human bubble when we start talking about this because these are big, big ideas that have very, very personal and profound implications. Okay, so uh, what we're going to do is look at a just a couple passages out of of the Bible. In particular, we're going to look out of uh, a passage out of what we call the Gospel of John. But but the Gospel Gospel is a word that means good news, 
And so if you ever read the Bible, we have four gospels, four good news stories about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And every single one of those gospel writers has a vision and an aspect of Jesus and God that they are particularly passionate about. Before we get to John's gospel, to show you how John says Jesus says yes to humanity and God says yes to humanity, I want to show you what Luke how Luke works the concept of what God is doing through Jesus because I just want to plan in your mind that these writers are using language in amazing and powerful and interesting ways. So um, in Luke's good news story of Jesus, which is what Ron uh, read to us this morning or, or just a couple minutes ago, we find this passage, okay? The angel said, don't be afraid. And look, I bring good news. That's the word, gospel. I bring you gospel, good news to you, wonderful, joyous news for all people. He says, your Savior is born today in David's city. He is Christ the Lord, okay? So Luke is right off the bat saying, listen, saying yes to humanity means it's a joyous occasion for everybody. There's a Savior. And even that is like, okay, man, that's really good news. But uh, when you really start dealing with the Bible, you realize that these writers, there's more going on underneath the surface than what you might think. So, for instance, Luke is using language in very particular ways to say something about who Jesus is and what God is doing through Jesus. Let me show you what this means. Some of the language that, that uh, Luke is using in that passage, uh, good news is the Greek word euagaliso. Say that. Ah, good job. All right. My Christmas present to you guys is Greek. So I hope you like it. So uh, he says, there's good news. There's a savior, the Greek word soter. And then he uses this word Christos, which is uh, a, a Greek word, but a Jewish concept. Uh, the word can just mean anointed one. We understand it as Christ, uh, but it is the Jewish concept of the Messiah. Their long-awaited hope for a Savior, right? But then Luke ties, uh, tags this other word onto it. In the Greek, it would look, Christos Kyrios. And Kyrios is Lord and King. It can also just mean a term of respect. It can mean King. Sometimes it means God. But this is what's interesting, is that all of these words in the first century, when Luke is writing, when Jesus is living... These are all words that are political words, and in particular, they're associated with the Roman Empire and the Emperor of Rome, who has just declared himself to be God. So if uh, when Julius Caesar decided to be, you know, cross the Rubicon and became emperor, he would call himself Julius Caesar uh, Kyrios, Lord, King, Caesar. And this is what's really fun, is that when Caesar won a victory, there would be people who would come to towns and they would say, guess what, guys? There is good news today for all people, for your Lord Caesar has just won a great victory. So you see, when the angel shows up to these shepherds, he's actually using Rome's own language to start to plant in people's heads that saying yes to human beings for Luke is really about asking the question, who's in charge of the world? And how does the world work? Is Caesar in charge or is Jesus in charge? Because the king gets to make the rules, does he not? The emperor gets to determine the way of life 
And Luke is saying, listen, I'm going to use Rome's language, but Caesar ain't in charge anymore. There's a new sheriff in town. So the Bible uses language this way. Now, so let me show you what John, the author of the fourth gospel, does when he introduces Jesus. So uh, the gospel of John starts with a song. It starts with a poem. It starts with these beautiful, metaphoric, uh, evocative language. And in John 1.14, he says this about Jesus coming into the world. He says, The Word became flesh and made his home among us. And we have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son full of grace and truth. And in that passage, uh, John is saying that God said yes to humanity in very particular ways. And uh, um, I want to show you how he's saying yes. So the first thing he says is he says the word logos in Greek, which just means word in Greek, but it also in the first century is associated with, um, it's, it's actually a capital W if you ever look at your Bible, because there's a concept in, particularly in Stoic philosophy, of this something called the logos. And the logos is eternal and existed and it helped create the universe and it's responsible for bringing order to everything. And so John says, actually he takes that concept of logos, he says, no, that thing, the creating force in the universe, became flesh. So right there, he says, listen, something eternal decided to take on something temporal. And so when he uses the word flesh, he uses the Greek word sarks. And like a lot of Greek words, it can mean flesh. It can just mean this thing that we all wear, right? But in the Bible, sarks has another term. Sarks in the Bible can actually be used by a lot of the writers to talk about, well, some psychologists might call it the false self. The sarks can talk about the things that, that trip us up over and over again, the patterns of thinking that we have in our life that we wish we didn't have, but we have them anyway. Anybody have a temper? Well, lots of liars tonight. All right. All right. Ever wish that you didn't have a temper? Ever try hard not to have a temper, but you had one anyway? That temper is your sarks. It's the thing that you wish you didn't have, but it's with you anyway. And John says, Jesus came right into that place. The things that aren't perfect about us. And John says, not only did he take over he came in the flesh, our bodies, but he actually came into the less attractive parts of our personality. Not to kind of pat us on the back and say, good job having a temper, but to say, I know what it feels like. I understand what it feels like. So he says, the word, the logos, the eternal became flesh into every part of our being. And then he said, he made his home among us. Now, the Greek word is, uh, for made his home is skenuo. And that can also mean, uh, some translations render it tabernacled. And then he says, we've seen his glory, his doxa. And when John does that, he catapults, catapults us into a whole new place. He catapults, catapults us into the Sinai Desert with the, uh, the tribes of Israel. 
Because uh, if you guys were here in the fall, you know that we, we talked a lot about this, this uh, miracle that happened when God set his people free from slavery in Egypt and then they wandered through the desert for 40 years on the way to the promised land. And on the way, uh, God gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them these instructions for living life well. And then he says, listen, I want you to build me a tent where I can live. And that tent is called the tabernacle. That's the place where God's presence is going to reside. And he said, listen, my glory is going to be there. My presence is going to be there. And so I want, first I want to show you out of um, just a picture of what it would have looked like. Because God said, build a temple or build a tabernacle. And he said, put it at the center of all of the camp. Put it at the center of all the camp. Now, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Well, I was thinking about this and, and I would think, put myself in the, in the place of God's people. They've been set free. They've been enslaved for hundreds and hundreds of years. And now they're wandering the desert. Like how secure do they, you think they feel about life? Slavery for 100 years, now you're in the middle of the desert. How good is life looking for you right now? Wouldn't you rather like slavery be like straight to like Acapulco or like, I don't know, like some kind of really cush place where you could hang out and just be content? But you've been set free from slavery. You're not even probably sure what, how to be free. And then God takes you into the desert for 40 years. You, you think you might have a doubt or two in your mind? Did we make the right decision? And I think the tabernacle for me answers a couple critical questions that maybe you would be asking if you were honest with yourself, which is, listen, we're out in the middle of the desert. How do we know that God is with us? How do we know that he's for us? How do we know that he's on our side? Because hello, the desert is uncomfortable. I got sand in my everywhere. And so God says, build the tabernacle. Put it in the middle of the camp. Because when you ever ask these questions, you know what you do? You point and you go, you see that over there? Yes. If you doubt, look in the center of the camp. That's where he is. When you struggle, look over there. That's where he is. And so God provides this way to say, listen, when you're struggling and when life isn't going well, look over to that place and that's where God is. So yes, he's with you. Yes, he's for you. Yes, he's on your side. Even though life doesn't look great. In Leviticus uh, chapter 26, which is a, a, a manual for, for worship in the Old Testament, God says this about the tabernacle and about uh, sort of what he's doing through it. He says, listen, um, I will make my dwelling, my tabernacle among you, and I will not despise you. I will walk around among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. I'll walk around with you. I'll be with you. I will not despise you. Here's what's interesting about this, especially as, as it's compared to what John says. He says, listen, the Logos, the eternal, he, he came and he's dwelling with his people. He's tabernacling with us. This passage in Leviticus happens actually in the midst of a bunch of if statements. God says, if you keep my commandments, I'll do this. If you obey what I tell you to do, I'll do this. 
And then this is sort of the culmination of, do you know what's not there in John's passage? There ain't no if statements. There ain't no if statements. God doesn't say, if you obey, Jesus will come and tabernacle among you. If you're good, if you have a really good life, he will come into that flesh and he'll say, yes, this is what it means to be human. If you don't have that sin, because you can have all these other ones, but let's not have that one because that one God won't deal with. There's no if statements. God just says, boom. The word became flesh and dwelt among his people. And you can look and you can go, oh, is God for me? Is he with me? Yeah. Look right over there at Jesus. So this is the way I would put it. Jesus is the unconditional tabernacle. He's the promise that God is with us and God is for us, regardless of your mistakes, my mistakes, your brokenness, my brokenness, your struggle, my struggle. God says, yes, I am with you, for you, and I will not despise you. Now, if that wasn't enough, uh, a few verses prior to that, God, uh, John writes this, but for those who did welcome him, just make room for Jesus in their life, and who believed in his name, he authorized to become God's children. Well, that word authorized also means gave the power to. And what does God say about his son, Jesus? I think God likes Jesus. Calls him his beloved. Says that Jesus, the Logos, comes in and, and he is the only son of the Father. And then a few verses before, he says, listen, if you trust Jesus and make room for him in your life, you can become like Jesus. You have got the power and the authority to make your life more than it is right now. So whatever you are struggling with, God says, I'll give you resources to grow, to change, to live out the life of Jesus in your context. Like This is like not, like if you open this up on Christmas morning, you'd be like, mind blown, I'm done. We have the spiritual capacity to grow, to transform, to be Jesus in our own context, right here, right now. That is God saying yes to humanity. You do not have to hide your brokenness, your struggles, but you can become more and beyond them. So I wanna just work this out. And, and show you guys just some things that were on my heart, on my brain, about like how this works itself out. Maybe uh, a little bit more illustration will, will help. So, and I felt, well, how am I going to do that? And I was like, you know what? I thought baking shows. So like a lot of you, uh, my family got really into the Great British Baking Show. Why? Because it's great and it's British. Um, so we've watched every season, we've, we've debated the presenters, you know, which pair did you like most? And if you don't know the show, it's basically they take like 13, I think, amateur bakers. They put them in a tent in the lovely English countryside. And every week they have a challenge, they have a, a three challenges to get to. Who can be the best baker? And the, the dishes are really challenging. And so they bake and then they, the judges, they have these two judges and they, they evaluate the dishes. 
And so like on the one hand, it's very British. Uh, and by that, I mean they're very polite. They are endlessly polite to one another. Never say anything bad about one another. But on the other hand, you get sent home. If you're low baker on the baking totem pole, you go home. And so there's this tension of just watching how wonderful they are to each other, and yet it's pretty ruthless. So there is a, if, you, if you're part of great British baking show lore, there's an infamous episode where uh, one week it's very hot outside, they're in a tent, and they have to prepare a dish that is frozen. It's, it's got a frozen component, so they have to prepare it, then they have to freeze it, and then uh, it's race against time because it's so hot, and then they have to present it to the judges before it melts. And there's a man named Ian, uh, who I believe is Scottish, and he's got an amazing beard, and... Uh, and Ian, uh, like there's just something happens to Ian's dish. And so uh, I want you to just watch the screens, uh, what happens. With the clock ticking Voila. and the temperature rising, it's so hot. The bakers must assemble the sponge and the ice cream. The aim is to get the Alaska in the freezer as quickly as possible. Oh no. We'll have to work fast here now. It's uh, pretty warm in here and uh, the ice cream's melting quickly. The middle one has not set at all. I think probably when they cut into it, that bit's gonna collapse. Unless some miracle happens. I'm just going to bang it back in the freezer. I need to go in the freezer, 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 freezer. It's 25 degrees. Can I put this in the freezer? And the bakers need to keep their Alaskas cold while they get the meringues ready for piping. Who's this? Ian's, I think. That's Ian. It's got the I just need to get this on really quick. Okay, Bakers, 15 minutes, please. 15 minutes. Where's my ice cream? It's here. Sorry, Ian. We, we uh, well, that, you've got your own freezer, haven't freezer. you? This is all melted. Why, why would you take ice cream out of the freezer? What's wrong? How's it looking? It's like... It's soup. The only, the only reason why it stayed there because I put the tin round to hold the caramel in. <laughs> okay, alright, so let's think about how we're going to present that. Um, that's, that's, not, that's not okay. I got a sorry right. suggestion. Oh! No, 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 no. Ian, 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 you have to present. You have Look at it. You can't present it. So if you caught it or not, uh, the, the, the elderly lady in red asked, who's, who's this dish is this? And they say it's Ian's. And 
depending on which story you believe, uh, she either accidentally or not took Ian's ice cream out and just left it sit. And it wasn't Ian's fault. It just happened. But because of the show, uh, he, you know, he's like, well, it's no good anymore. So he threw it in the bin, in the trash, and he got sent home that week because he didn't have anything to present. And as cordial as they are, the show was still about, if you didn't get it done, you go home. Now, uh, we uh, recently have gotten involved in another baking show. Um, this was called Nailed It. Anybody know this show? It's a Netflix series. So uh, it arose out because all great things come from the internet. Um, it came from the internet of like people attend, attempting either crafts or sometimes dishes and failing miserably. And then they would post a picture of what they were trying to do with the results and they would just like nailed it. So like, in other words, this is what you would see on the internet. Like, so you'd see in the top, they're trying to make this thing. And then, you know, um, and then we have uh, next slide. We have the rubber ducky cupcakes down there at the bottom. That's the results. Slightly scary, weeping blood, it looks like there are. Um, next slide, my favorite, I, Cookie Monster Cupcakes. Beautiful. And then uh, I think there's one more like this. This one, I'm like, the minions only ever have one eye. Am I wrong? Like, Anyway, so they took this idea and they made a series out of it. And, and uh, each you know, episode has three amateur bakers. And just like the Great British Baking Show, like, they have to prepare a dish. And, the, and they're not easy to prepare. And they do their best. And, and there's this one episode where a woman named uh, Tony, uh, she has to make a princess castle. And so I want to show you what she's supposed to make. So this is Rapunzel and the dragon down there. And then we have a close-up of the princess. This is what the princess is supposed to look like, okay? And now let's just, I want to show you like what Tony does and what the results are. Let's see what you did, Tony. Nailed it. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but your princess is terrifying. She is so scary looking, and I don't think anybody's coming to rescue her. Oh no, and then your dragon got decapitated. Yes. But I love this cake so much. The princess is a little bit scary with the eyes. You know, those big eyes, she just wake up. What voice do you think your princess has? Hi guys. <laughs> you need to kill that dragon off with his head. <laughs> So her voice matches her face. <laughs> if you stare in her eyes, you'll get, you nope. know, you could. <laughs> no, thank you. I won't do it. Okay. So here's the thing about, about Nailed It. Uh, the, the French guy is actually a world-famous pastry chef. And, uh, you know, there is a winner on the show, but they're actually remarkably gracious to these utter disasters of of food prep. And I was reading a little bit about the show and, and there actually have been some legitimate bakers on the show, but they say, listen, actually there's no way to get it, to get what, what they want done to get it done. They're like, so the show is not built on the idea of getting it perfect. It's built on the idea of you do what you can with what you've got 
and then you receive a little education and sometimes it's humorous, but you're not sent home. And, and what it boils down to for me, maybe my brain just works weird this way, is life and God a little bit more like the Great British Baking Show or is a little bit more like Nailed It. And I think a lot of times, like we can fall into the thing of just like, if it's not good enough, I get sent home. If, if what I've made out of my life is not good enough, then I might as well just throw it in the bin, throw it in the trash. Because God certainly wouldn't say yes to that. But when God says yes to humanity, he says yes, absolutely. He says yes to even the tempers that we have, even the things that we do that we wish we didn't have. And he says yes to it at your core. You are good. I love you. You're worth it. You don't belong in the bin. And furthermore, I'll give you the power and the resources to become even better and more like Jesus than you ever thought you were. That to me does not sound like the Great British Bacon Show, go home if you're not good enough. It sounds a little bit more like, listen, 